Well, let's uh, proceed to our second lecture then. Uh, this I've entitled Incarnation Anyway, Superlapsare and Christology, if you're actually following the titles that I gave months in advance to uh, the organisers. And that's where we're going. Okay, so there's a little hint of uh, what's, in what's ahead of us. Here's an interesting and important theological question. Is the incarnation contingent upon human sin? In other words, is it the case that God ordains the incarnation because of human sin and only because of human sin? Or is it that there would have been an incarnation irrespective of human sin? If the latter, why would there need to be an incarnation if there was no human sin? This question about whether there need have been an incarnation independent of human sin is usually called the incarnation anyway question in the contemporary literature on Christology. Sometimes the incarnation anyway question is thought to be an idle one. Those who think this worry that it's a species of theological speculation and that theological speculation ought to be avoided because we don't have adequate answers to such queries that we were talking about this last time. In other words, it's not a question that's theologically productive on analogy with the mythical medieval school theological query about how many angels can dance on a pinhead which incidentally I think is a theologically productive question, but that's another matter. <laughs> in, this, yeah, I'm sure. in this lecture, I want to suggest that it is actually a vital theological question that merits our scrutiny. I grant that it's speculative, but I deny that it's idle or useless speculation. I want to suggest that a certain sort of theological speculation may be permissible, provided it's theologically productive. And it seems to me that the incarnation anyway question is just such a, ma such a matter. I will argue that the right answer to this question is that there would be an incarnation irrespective of human sin because an incarnation is required in order for us to be united to God. This in turn has important implications for what we think about God's purposes in election. We shall consider each of these matters in the course of the lecture and will proceed as follows. First, I shall set out some terms, especially what's meant by supra and infralapsarianism. I imagine most of you have come across these terms in the ordering of the divine decrees. I say that because in, in Fuller, nobody would have a clue about what infralapsarian and supralapsarian <laughs> Then I shall offer a narrative account of the particular version of an incarnation anyway argument that I want to defend. And once we're in possession of the reasons for an incarnation anyway Christology, I'm going to address some of the main strengths as well as the weaknesses of this view, none of which I contend rebut the incarnation anyway argument. And hopefully as we go through, you'll see how this is a sequel to what some of the things we were talking about before lunch. So firstly, let's think about some terms uh, like superlapsarian and infralapsarianism. To begin with, let's set the argument up. Incarnation anyway reasoning is usually connected to the debate about the ordering of the divine decrees, one of the quixotic preoccupations of reformed theologians, at least that's what I'm often told. <laughs> there are two broad approaches to the question of the ordering of the decrees. The first is superlapsarian, the second infralapsarian. The difference between the two is usually said to be a difference about the logical or conceptual distinctions in the order of what God ordains it to bring about in creation. Because God is outside of time, as we've said uh, previously, these distinctions cannot be chronological ones. It isn't as if at one moment God ponders what sort of world to create and then at a subsequent moment thinks about whether human beings that populate one corner of the creation will fall and that it is still, uh, then at a still later moment thinks about whether he will redeem some number of those humans that will fall, and so on. 
Though redolent of many far side cartoons, and even of Michelangelo's great fresco, The Creation of Adam, on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, I hope you like the juxtaposition there of the sublime and the ridiculous. <laughs> this is nevertheless a piece of misleading anthropomorphism. God does not sit and cogitate over time, ordering his thoughts one after another as they're formed in his mind, for that presumes God's temporal. Instead, he orders these things eternally or atemporally, as we've already said. We conceive of these things as distinct because they obtain at different times in creation. God's act in election has numerous discrete temporal effects. Nevertheless, these effects are actually aspects of one eternal act of God. Let's presume that this way of thinking about God's relation to time is right. The superlapsarian thinks that the ordering of the decrees is such that God ordains the election of some number of human beings logically prior to the decree to permit the fall, hence supralapsus. In other words, the decree to elect is said to be above, supra, or before the decree to fall in the logical ordering of these things in God's mind. By contrast, the infralapsarian maintains that the ordering of the decrees are such that God ordains the election of some number of human beings logically consequent to the decree to permit the fall, hence infralapsus. In other words, the decree is below infra, the decree to permit the fall, in the logical ordering of these things in the mind of God. The distinction between these two accounts of the ordering of God's decrees in election depends on the difference between an antecedent and consequent in a conditional statement. Now, stay with me, because this might, might be a little bit um, out, out of your um, normal course of things. A conditional statement has the form of if X, then Y. A common textbook example is this. If it's raining, then I'm wet. Suppose it is raining, then, assuming I've no means of shielding myself from the inclement weather and I'm outside... I am wet. The antecedent term of this conditional statement is the part that follows the conditional if, that is, the part that says, if it is raining. The consequent term is the part that follows the then, as in, then I am wet. In the recent historical and theological literature, authors like Paul Helm and Willem van Asselt have labored to show that the Reformed Orthodox in the post-Reformation period used a number of careful logical distinctions to help explain rather arcane bits of theology. In the matter of the ordering of the divine decrees, I think that the relevant distinction is that between antecedent and consequent. To put it in more concrete terms, many historic reform theologians worry about which state of affairs God brings about when he creates the world. Does he bring about a state of affairs in which infralapsarianism obtains or one where superlapsarianism obtains? The former is a state of affairs in which God ordains some, the, the salvation of some of the fallen consequent upon ordaining the fall of some of the fallen. In other words, he ordains something like this. If I create a world in which all humanity falls from grace, then I shall ordain the salvation of some number of these fallen human beings. <coughs> By contrast, if God ordains a superlapsarian state of affairs, then he ordains the salvation of some number of human creatures antecedent to any fall. That is, he ordains something like this. If I create a world in which some number of humanity is elect then I shall order a world, ordain a world in which all humanity falls from grace. In fact, these are not two distinct views so much as they are two families of views on the ordering of the divine decrees, for there are different ways or different versions of uh, thinking about each of these orderings of the divine decree. My concern is with a particular version of supralapsarianism. On this version of the doctrine, the conditional is rather different, the version I'm interested in. The issue is whether God ordains the election of some number of humanity to salvation independent of the question of human sin. 
We can put it like this. Suppose in the purposes of God, there is an infinite number of possible worlds he could create. Of that number, there's a subgroup of worlds that includes human beings. Of this group of worlds in which there are human beings, there's a subgroup in which God unites himself with some number of human beings. Now, of that group of worlds in which there's a certain number of human beings that's united to God, there is another subgroup united to God by the work of Christ. Here I presume that there are possible worlds in which God unites himself to some number of human beings independent of Christ. Now, that's a controversial claim. If there are no worlds in which God, in which union obtains independent of Christ, then the group of worlds in which union obtains independent of Christ is like a null set. It contains no members. There are two further subgroups of worlds that contain human beings, some number of which are united to God by the work of Christ. In the first subgroup are worlds in which God unites himself to some number of human beings through Christ and where a fall takes place. In such worlds, God ordains union with some number of human beings logically prior to his ordination of the fall, which is why uh, this group of worlds is a species of supralapsarianism, not infralapsarianism. In the second subgroup are worlds in which God unites himself to some number of human beings through Christ and where no fall takes place. It is that cluster of worlds, what in the literature is often called a galaxy of possible worlds, that I'm interested in. Those worlds uh, where we're united to Christ and no fall takes place. (coughs) Now, suppose there's at least one possible world like that where God saves some number of human beings through Christ and where no fall takes place. Recall that the issue we're interested in, that is the version of supralapsarianism with which we're concerned, has to do with whether God elects some number of humanity to salvation independent of the question of human sin. In this galaxy of worlds, he does that via the work of Christ. Suppose there's at least one such world, then the question is, Why would God need to save some number of human beings through Christ in that world if there's no sin? So that's the setup. Here's the argument. This brings us to the matter of setting out the argument I have in mind. So that we can distinguish it from other versions of superlapsarianism, let's call it the Christological Union version of incarnation anyway argument, which is a bit of a mouthful. So we'll call it for short the Christological Union argument. In order to cover as much ground as possible in a short space, what I propose to do is give a sketch of the argument in a narrative or just-so story, after which we shall pause to take stock of its main theological claims and potential shortcomings. That seems to me the most straightforward way of getting the message across. So let's, see, let's, let's have a go at that now. Here we go. So here's the story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. God desires to create a world in which there are creatures with whom he may be united, so that they may participate in his divine life. Indeed, participation of creatures in the divine life is a final goal of creation, perhaps even the ultimate goal, though we need not commit ourselves to that claim for present purposes. To that end, God conceives of human beings as creatures ideally suited to such a relationship. They are ideally suited because they are metaphysically amphibian, being composed of bodies, thereby rooted in the physical world God creates, as well as souls, thereby having a part that belongs to the immaterial world of spirits. Such metaphysical composition means that humans have a foot in both the physical world of creation and the spiritual world that includes the angels and God. 
To enable these human creatures to participate in the divine life, God must take the initiative and unite himself with one of these creaturely natures, assuming it, and thereby generating an interface between the divinity and humanity, so that human beings may have a conduit by means of which they may be united to God. On the Christological view I'm expanding here, it's not possible for sinless human creatures to take the initiative and unite themselves to God, independent of an act of divine condescension and accommodation such as that envisaged in the Incarnation. Even sinless human beings are not capable of that feat of metaphysical bootstrapping. In a similar manner, a house or office needs a wireless hub in order that the various laptop computers, tablets and cell phones owned by those who live or work in that space may be able to be wirelessly linked to the electronic hub and access the internet. The hub is the conduit by means of which the various pieces of electronic hardware owned by users in the property can interact with or participate in the virtual world that the World Wide Web has brought direct to our living rooms and offices. God's union with human nature provides something like a hub by means of which other human beings can access the divine and participate in union with God. The incarnation is the way in which this hub or interface between divinity and humanity is achieved. That's why the God-man must be both fully human and fully divine. Fully human because it's union with this kind of creature that God desires. Fully divine because it's union with God that is the intended outcome. By analogy, a working hub for wireless connection to the internet must have the right component parts so that it can interact with signals sent from computers and other devices that are attempting to access the World Wide Web wirelessly. It must have the complete electronic parts necessary to provide this interface, and that includes both the hardware as well as the electronic connection to the remote servers that together provide the global computer network that is the Internet. Only with both the right hardware and the right electronic connection will the hub function correctly. Similarly, only if the interface between humanity and God is fully divine and fully human, having the relevant component parts that belong to each of these entities, will it be possible to generate the spiritual hub by means of which human beings can be united to God in order to participate in the divine life. So if God desires to create a world in which there are creatures with whom he may be united in order that they may participate in his divine life (coughs) as a final end of the creation, then it looks like the incarnation is a fitting means by which to provide such an outcome. In other words, for human beings to be able to participate in the divine life, we need a hub or interface with the divine, and an incarnation is one way in which God can provide that. Note that this story doesn't claim that the incarnation is a requirement for such an outcome. It only claims that the incarnation is a fitting means of providing for this outcome. It may be that it is the most fitting of all things uh, that we could consider, but there are good reasons for opting for this weaker modal claim instead. For one thing, it's easier to defend. What theological reasons do we have for thinking that the Incarnation is indeed a fitting mechanism by means of which this hub between God and humanity has been established, rather than, as it's more often reported, merely the means by which human salvation is obtained? Here we may appeal to evidence of an inferential or indirect sort. The doctrine of the image of God has long been the subject of theological debate, and there are different views about what that image consists in. However, it's indisputable that alongside biblical passages that make claims about human beings being made in the divine image, like Genesis 1, 26 and 27, for example, there are passages in the New Testament that speak of Christ as the image of God, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, 2 Corinthians 4, Hebrews 1, 3 and so on. There is a tradition, 
often associated with the Eastern Orthodox churches, of linking these two sorts of biblical passages, generating an account of the image of God that is Christological in nature. Let's call this the Christological doctrine of the image of God. On this way of thinking, Christ is the image of God, strictly speaking. We image God as we are conformed to the prototypical image of God in Christ. Suppose God intends to create a world in which there are creatures with whom he may be united so that they may participate in his divine life as a final end of the creation. Suppose further that in order to bring about this union, God conceives of the incarnation as the fitting means to this end. According to this line of reasoning, God first intends to create a world in which there are creatures with whom he may be united so that they may participate in his divine life as a final end of the creation. He intends humans to be those creatures and he intends the incarnation as the fitting means to this end in the creation. In other words, it's by means of the incarnation that God brings about the interface between humanity and divinity necessary for the final end to be achieved. Now, on this view, it makes sense to think that Christ is ordained as the image of God, being both fully divine and human. His human nature is generated for a divine person to be his human nature over which he has metaphysical ownership. That human nature is specially created to be fit for use by a divine person being without sin. In the hypostatic union, that obtains by the, at the first moment of incarnation, and God the Son can be seen and interacted with by means of his human nature, his human nature is, as it were, impressed upon the divine life. This means that there is in Christ an interface between divinity and humanity, a hub, by means of which human beings can be united to God, like the wireless electronic hub in our earlier example. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, He's the express image of the Father. But he's also a human being, having all the parts of a human being, including a body and soul, rightly related, that makes his human nature metaphysically amphibious, as are all other human beings. Now, so far, so good. (coughs) The Christological doctrine of the image of God goes a step further to claim that God ordains that human beings are formed in order that he may be united with them by means of the Incarnation. Christ is not just the interface between divinity and humanity, He is, in fact, the prototypical human, the one after whose image we are all fashioned as human beings. And because his human nature is made in order to be united with God, so also our human natures are made with this capacity. Not, emphatically not, that we are hypostatically or personally united to God in the way that Christ's human nature is united to God the Son. We are not. Did you get the not there? (laughs) Nevertheless, we have, the capacity to be, we have the capacity to be hypostatically united to God. There is a capacity to interface between divinity and humanity built into human nature. It is this very capacity that is utilized by God the Son at the first moment of incarnation so that he's able to upload himself, as it were, into the human nature formed for him in the womb of the Virgin. For this reason, his human nature is the human nature of a divine person. It never exists independently of a divine person and therefore never becomes a person independent of God the Son. All other human beings, you and me included, are not the subjects of such a divine upload at the first moment of generation. One consequence of this is that we become human persons independent of God because God fails to do something to us that he does in the case of Christ. He fails to upload himself into our human nature at the moment that we're generated in utero, making them human natures possessed by a divine person. According to the Christological doctrine of the image of God, then, Christ is the prototypical prototypical image of God. His human nature is like the original sculpture from which a mold is taken in order to reproduce copies of the original, with our human natures being the copies. 
Or to change the simile, his human nature is like the prototypical automobile from whose blueprints the production line vehicles are made, with us being the production line versions of the same model of vehicle. Transposing the language of divine election, we can say this. God ordains that he will create a world of creatures with whom he may be united so that they may participate in his divine life as a final end of the creation. Human creatures are those entities conceived for this purpose because they're metaphysical amphibians having the right physical and immaterial parts. God ordains that he will unite himself to human creatures by assuming a particular human nature, the nature of Christ. This assumption brings one human nature into a hypostatic or personal union with a divine person, namely God the Son, God the Son voluntarily chooses to be Christ in order to bring about this union between divinity and humanity. He is, in one important sense, the ground or foundation of our election because it is his eternal decision to be the mediator between divinity and humanity that enables the incarnation to take place. And it is the incarnation that enables us to be, to be able to participate in the divine life by means of the secret working of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ. So God ordains Christ as the means by which union with God is made possible for human beings, Christ is the first human in terms of the logical priority in God's decrees. God first ordains that Christ will be the hub between divinity and humanity, the means by which union obtains. To be this hub, he must be the image of the invisible God. I've taken this to mean he must have a sinless human nature, as Hebrews 4.15 says, in addition to his divine nature, in order for the personal union between God and the natural endowment of a creature to obtain. So his human nature images God by means of the hypostatic union. He's made a fitting vehicle or vessel by means of which the second person of the Trinity can act in creation. <coughs> Excuse me. That is, his human nature is made to be metaphysically united to a human person. Or at least a human nature. Other human natures, including those possessed by you and me, are made after the likeness of this prototypical nature. And so we image God as we image Christ. In this way, God ordains Christ as the interface between divinity and humanity. And Christ, Christ's incarnation brings about this interface, enabling union with God to be achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, linking us, uniting us to Christ in a way analogous to the linking of particular computers to the wireless hub uh, in the home office where we work. Now, this brings us to a vital matter often misunderstood in theology, the claim here is not that God the Son assumes some sort of universal humanity so that by becoming human, God the Son somehow changes all human natures from the inside out, so to speak. One often hears people say, and the patristic fathers, the fathers often say, Christ assumes humanity. That's what I'm getting at here. But that's to confuse two things, the property that all human beings share in virtue of being human and the particular instance of a human nature that is assumed by God the Son. God the Son assumes a particular human nature. Um, that is the nature of Jesus of Nazareth. The human nature of Jesus is his human nature. It's made for him by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. But it is a particular human nature, not some universal human nature, whatever that might be. The reason why the Incarnation brings about union with God it's not because in assuming human nature he assumes some universal thing that we all share with him and that he's able to heal from the inside out, which is what some of the fathers think. Rather, this union obtains by means of the interaction, sorry, by means of the incarnation acting as an interface between divinity and humanity, enabling us to be united to God in Christ via the secret work of the Holy Spirit. 
Much theological ink has been spilt trying to get this distinction clear, and not a few important theologians have been confused on this very matter. Clarifying what is meant by this union and how it is brought about by the Incarnation is vital. Confusion on this point has often led theologians in the past to make rash and unfounded claims about the vicarious humanity of Christ that are metaphysically confused. This brings us to a second important consideration. By setting up the doctrine of election in terms of God's desire to be united to his creation via a particular sort of creature fitted for this purpose, in other words humans, it should be clear that this argument implies what we are calling an incarnation anyway. That is, union with God is not contingent upon human sin. It is independent of any fall. In fact, it's independent of any creaturely action. God desires union with his creatures so that they may, may participate in the divine life. This is the end, or at least one of the ends, at which God aims at in creating this world. But it's an aim that would have been fulfilled if he had created a world in which there was no human sin, no fall, and the dreadful consequences that result, but which was populated by human creatures with whom he desired union. Clearly, in such a world, the incarnation is not contingent upon sin. Humans in such a world would still need a mediator between divinity and humanity, independent of the fall, because they would need a God-man to provide the hub by means of which they might be united to God. Being sinless human beings is not a sufficient condition for such a union. It requires special divine action. <clears throat> to put this point slightly differently, on the Christological union view, even a sinless creature is not in a position to be united to God. Such union requires both an interface between divinity and humanity, such as the Incarnation provides, and a means by which human creatures may be united to God via that interface, which is provided by the secret working of the Holy Spirit. Now, that completes the just-so story. That's it. You've just heard it. And with it, the constructive part of the lecture, so you can all breathe a sigh of relief. We may now turn to strengths and weaknesses of the argument embedded in this narrative. Let's begin with the strengths, and then we'll look at some potential weaknesses. The first great strength of this version of the Incarnation, perhaps of all Incarnation, anyway, doctrines, is that it doesn't make God's gracious act of condescension in Christ dependent on human sin. Union with God in Christ by means of the Holy Spirit is a great triune work in the economy of creation, and in this way of thinking about the matter, it's one of the ends, perhaps the ultimate end, at which God aims at in creating the world. Indeed, we might say that this outcome is hardwired into the metaphysics of creation. So this Christological union version of the Incarnation anyway, argument places Christ at the centre of creation and union with God as the end of creation. Indeed, on this way of thinking, a complete theological understanding of creation is impossible without the doctrine of the Trinity, and especially that ancient Catholic doctrine that the uh, works of the Trinity, the external works of the Trinity, are indivisible. And without a high Christology, and without the agency of the Holy Spirit applying the benefits of Christ to the believer. Not only that, it also draws on a Christological doctrine of the image of God that has ecumenical promise, especially with our Eastern Orthodox sisters and brothers. <clears throat> what is more, despite the fact that it requires a high Christology and a Christologically focused account of God's act and ends in creation, the Christological union argument also preserves a robust notion of divine freedom. This is the second strength of the view. As we saw in the last lecture, 
in contemporary discussion of election, it's Karl Barth's doctrine of church dogmatics 2.2 that casts a long shadow over all other attempts to conceive of divine election. Yet one of the persisting worries about Barth's doctrine is its implications for divine freedom. There is a current scholarly debate about the precise dogmatic shape of Barth's doctrine, and as before, we're not going to enter into that now. However, on uh, the sort of view that we outlined last time, Barth's mature view of divine election and the Trinity are intention, attention he didn't finally resolve. Had he resolved this tension in the direction of his doctrine of election, then it would have been clear that his view implies that the very triunity of God is a function of divine election. Expressed more exactly, says Bruce McCormack, the eternal act of self-differentiation in which God is God a second time in a very different way, and a third time as well, is given in the eternal act where God elects himself for the human race. He goes on to say, in other words, the works of God ad intra, within himself, the Trinitarian processions, find their ground in the first of God's works ad extra, outside of himself, vis-a-vis election. <coughs> Close quote. On the face of it, this interpretation of Bart's legacy implies that God is somehow constituted as triune in his eternal act of election, as we saw last time. Since on Bart's view, Christ is the subject and object of this electing act, the, the electing God and the elect and reprobate human being, this is tantamount to saying that God is constituted who he is as a triune being by the eternal act of divine election, whereby he chooses to be God for us in Christ. But this seems a rather Pickwickian sense of chooses. For if this eternal choice is the very act by means of which God determines his very being as triune, then it's difficult to see how God may refrain from such a momentous choice. In fact, it's very difficult to know what to make of this claim, since it suggests that his eternal act is logically prior to the divine being, which seems very strange indeed. How can anything, God included, act logically prior to being? It's difficult to see what this means. For it would appear that any agent, God included, must exist in order to act in one way or another. But perhaps the view is less problematic than this. Perhaps McCormack and other like-minded interpreters of Bart only mean to suggest that on this Bart-inspired way of thinking, God decides in the eternal act of election, the election of Christ, that he will be God for us, and therefore that he will be Father, Son, and Spirit in the economy of salvation. Though this may appear a weaker, more charitable reading of the view, it doesn't really express what McCormack actually says about the matter. In any case, as I say, on the face of it, this interpretation of Bart raises serious questions about the meaning of divine freedom in creation, which is usually taken to mean God may or may not create a world, and God may or may not create this world. Those are two distinct things, creating a world and creating this world. He is free to create, create and he is free to refrain from creating. What is more, there's nothing to constrain God to act in one way rather than another, other than his own nature. The Christological Union version of incarnation, anyway, offered here is consistent with this more traditional way of speaking about divine freedom. This, I think, is a strength rather than a weakness of the view. It's also an important way in which this incarnation, anyway, account parts company with the Bart-inspired construal of the doctrine of election, favoured by McCormack, amongst others. A third and closely related strength of the view is that it's commensurate with divine aseity. Now, if divine freedom has to do with God being able to create or refrain from creating a world, and this particular world, 
divine aseity, has to do with God being independent of the created order. This has two aspects. He must be metaphysically independent. That is, he is ontologically independent of everything outside himself. But he must also be psychologically independent of the creation. That is, he has no lack or need that requires satisfaction from some source external to himself. Now, on the face of it, our incarnation anyway argument satisfies the first of these claims about divine aseity because it's consistent with the notion that God may refrain from creating a world. Nor does it imply that the world is something like the necessary product of divine creativity, as, say, Jonathan Edwards believes. Indeed, as, say, Bruce McCormack believes. But does the Christological union argument satisfy the second aspect of aseity, namely divine psychological independence? The way I've set it up may suggest that it doesn't. For if one of the final ends of creation is unitive in nature, in other words, divine union with some number of creatures or some aspect of his creation, then it may seem that God is dependent on creation for the fulfillment of his desire for such union. (coughs) However, I think that this worry can be assuaged without too much difficulty if we attend to the detail of the unitive end of creation set forth in the Christological union argument. Recall that the divine creative act is framed in terms of a conditional. If God ordains the creation of the world, such and such necessarily follows from that. But since God may refrain from creating a world, and therefore may refrain from creating this particular world, he does not have a psychological need that is only met by an act of creation. God is not like the artist who must compulsively create in order to satisfy a basic urge or creative impulse. Nevertheless, God is creative. But he is creative because he chooses to be creative. Given that he chooses to create a world, he he then is faced with a decision about the ends of creation. And so, the Christological union argument says, he decides that union with with creatures is a fitting end for creation. None of this implies that God is psychologically dependent on something outside of himself for his own happiness. In this way, it seems to me that the incarnation enemy argument manages to navigate the difficult waters of divine aseity without falling into some of the problems that someone like Jonathan Edwards did in his ascent to the notion that creation is the necessary output of essential divine creativity. We come to a full strength of the view. <clears throat> My early remarks about Bart might lead readers, or hearers in this case, to think that the Christological union view attempts to make a decisive break with Bart. That would be a mistaken understanding of the view advocated here. My own thinking about election in general and this version of the Incarnation anyway owes a significant debt to Bart. As McCormack points out in his work on the Swiss theologian, one of the great insights Bart brings to the discussion of election is that it must be located in the doctrine of God, not elsewhere in the doctrine of creation. The Christological union argument outlined here takes that seriously. For if God creates in order to be united with his creatures so that they may participate in his life, and if Christ is the prototypical metaphysical amphibian that makes such union possible via human creatures, then it looks like creation is itself a function of the doctrine of election, which is located in the doctrine of God. I take this to be an attraction of the view and one of its strengths, at least in part because it means the incarnation is not fundamentally restorative, but unitive. That is, it's not fundamentally a matter of God reconciling us to himself, though it does achieve that in this world, of course, in the actual world. It is fundamentally about God providing the means of uniting us to God's self. The human sin that obtains in the actual world then complicates this picture 
by adding to the unitive function of election a redemptive one. Let's turn then to some potential weaknesses. <clears throat> Perhaps chief among these is the worry with which we started that this doctrine is speculative in the pejorative sense. Scripture speaks of Christ coming into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, not of Christ coming into the world irrespective of human sin in order to unite us to God. St. Paul makes it clear that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.3, not that Christ would have come into the world even if there was no need for human redemption from sin. So how is this doctrine consistent with the teaching of Holy Writ? Here I think we must be careful to acknowledge that Scripture speaks in the concrete language of religious faith, the language of proclamation, not of the schoolroom. The biblical material that speaks of Christ's work in the world is concerned only to explain why Christ actually came into the world. He reconciles us to God. How does he do that? By saving us from our sins. However, this is perfectly consistent with the Christological Union argument set out here, the issue, the issue isn't whether Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I take it that on this question, Scripture has a view, so to speak. The issue is whether Christ would have come into the world if there were no sinners to save. The view expressed here is that he would have done so, because union with God requires some act of divine condescension and accommodation, some interface between God and humanity, in order to unite us to God's self, irrespective of human sin. What is more... This function is in one sense more fundamental than the redemptive function Christ has in the actual world in virtue of human sin. <clears throat> so it seems to me that the theological issue doesn't turn on whether the incarnation anyway doctrine is consistent with what scripture says the work of Christ actually achieves. It turns on the question of the eternal purposes of God in creation. If his eternal purpose is to be united to the created order by means of human beings, the metaphysical amphibians of creation, then we have an important motivation for seriously considering incarnation anyway as a viable soteriological option. Are there indications of this in Scripture? I think there are. Consider, for example, the great Christological passage from Colossians 1, which tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. <clears throat> the passage goes on to link Christ to redemption, of course, but it's not insignificant that he is here said to be the image of God, the agent of creation, for whom all things are created. He is also the one who holds all things together, as well as being the head of the church. Then there is the passage in Ephesians 5 about the union between wives and husbands that is painted as an analogue to the mystery of the union between Christ and the church in Ephesians 5.32. Finally, there is the matter of becoming partakers of the divine nature, as Peter puts it in his second epistle in 2 Peter 1.4. Much more would need to be said were we attempting to give a biblical theological case for a superlapsarian Christology. These passages are merely illustrative of a certain Christological priority in Scripture. That is, so it seems to me, consistent with the sort of Christological union argument offered here. A second concern is raised by Jonathan Edwards in his seminal work, A Dissertation on the End for Which God Created the World. <coughs> there he lays out, with great penetration and insight, a careful analytical argument for the conclusion that God's goal in creation is, in the final analysis, 
to bring himself glory. There are other ends God aims at in creating the world, but this end is the most fundamental, or as Edwards puts it, the most ultimate. The Christological union argument I have outlined here depends on the claim that one fundamental aim in creation is unitive. On the face of it, it would appear that Edwards' concern runs in a different direction. Is his position more biblical and defensible? Not necessarily. For one thing, as I've been at pains to make clear, the incarnation anyway argument only requires that the unit of aim is one of the fundamental aims of creation, not the only one, not necessarily even the ultimate one. As Edwards points out, there are multiple ends in creation at which God aims. Some are more ultimate than others, however. In this regard, it's possible that God aims at union with his creatures, though he has a regard to himself and his own glory in doing so. It may even be that his glory is the ultimate end of his external works, though union is the means to that end, what in Edwards's nomenclature would be considered would constitute rather a final end but not an ultimate end. However, I worry that the Edwardsian obsession with divine self-glorification that uh, we see in uh, much of the new Calvinism today as the ultimate end of all God's creative works makes the creation, including creatures like you and me, merely the instruments by means of which God brings himself glory. This, it seems to me, is a problem. For normally we would think that an entity that seeks its own glory over a unitive end is morally deficient. To take a simple example, if a spouse tells her beloved that she married him in order to be united with him according to the Pauline one flesh principle, that would be something to celebrate. However, if she told him that she married him in order to be united to him simply because she knew that such union would bring her gratification and happiness, we might worry about her motives. Edwards is at pains to point out that a perfect being would be remiss in not glorifying himself because there's nothing higher for such a being to aim at, no greater entity that he should seek to glorify in his actions. On the Edwardsian scheme, it seems that my example of the loving spouse is not to the point because God is significantly unlike the spouse. The spouse is remiss if she aims at her own, glorif- uh, her own gratification in marriage, making her spouse the, the instrument by means of which to instantiate that gratification, for it's morally wrong to instrumentalize other agents in that way. But God cannot fail to glorify himself. It's not a moral lack on his part, a sign of moral dereliction or of vanity, but of his being perfect. My worry is that it is the Edwardsian response that is not to the point. The issue isn't whether God ought to glorify himself and his works, or even whether God ought to aim at this as the ultimate end of creation. The issue has to do with whether, in order to achieve this end, God may create human beings with the express purpose of using them as instruments by means of which he may achieve this end. If one feels the force of this concern as I do, then it may be that the Christological union argument must part ways with Edwards at this point, making the unitive function of creation the more fundamental end in creation. Happily, just such unitive view of God's end in creation can be found elsewhere, for example, in the work of St. Thomas Aquinas. Although St. Thomas's mature view on these matters was cautiously to eschew speculation on whether the Incarnation would have obtained apart from redemption, affirming instead that the fall may be the occasion of God's redemptive work in Christ, it's inter- interesting that in discussing the question of the fittingness of the Incarnation, he says the following, and here I quote him. The very nature of God is goodness, as is clear from Dionysus, the pseudo-Dionysus, the Areopagite. Hence, what begins 
What belongs to the essence of goodness befits God. But it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is plain from Dionysus. Hence, it belonged to the essence of the highest good to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature, and this is brought about chiefly by his so joining created nature to himself that one person is made up of these three, the word, a soul, and flesh, as Augustine says in De Trinitate. Hence, it is manifest that it was fitting that God should become incarnate. Now this, I suggest, what Thomas says, is independent of questions of a fall from grace. Conclusion. I have argued that there are good theological reasons for taking seriously superlapsarianism, though this is a minority report in the Christian tradition. I've also argued that an incarnation anyway version of superlapsarianism has much to commend it. The version of incarnation anyway that I've outlined and defended here, what I've called the Christological Union argument, has much in in keeping with Thomist thought, as well as some parallels with the work of some Eastern Orthodox thinkers. If the Christological union argument is right, then union with, with God is not merely a matter of redemption from sin, it's about the need for some divine action of accommodation and condescension by means of which humanity and divinity are conjoined in order that we may access the divine and participate in the life of God. Such a unitive goal has much to commend it. The fact that this unitive goal can be achieved through an argument that is Christological in nature is, I think, something worthy of our consideration. After all, it would be odd to think that the spectacular work of divine grace that is the Incarnation is merely God's rescue plan rather than the outcome he intended, independent of human sin, in order to unite us to God's self. Thank you. <laughs>